In Galatians 4.4, the Bible says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. Now, theologian Timothy George rightly notes, quote, One could hardly find a more succinct summary of the Christian gospel than God sent His Son. He writes, the coming of Jesus Christ into human history was not the accidental happening of late antiquity. Not only was the incarnation the fulfillment of myriads of Old Testament prophecies, but it was also the culmination of a plan. Devised within the eternal counsel of the triune God before the creation of the world. End quote. So I want you to listen to our text again today. We're breaking from Corinthians for our Christmas message, and our message really comes from one verse, and we want to get it internalized as to what it means. The text says, Galatians 4.4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. Now when you read that simple text in the Greek, you're going to come across the word pleroma. And that is the word for fullness in our text. And the word pleroma means something is filled utterly to capacity. It is the word used of the 12 basketfuls of leftovers. When Jesus fed the 5,000, there were 12 basketfuls and they were full to the brim. They were filled to capacity with leftovers. And so the Bible is saying in Galatians 4.4, think about this for a second, that, that, that 2,000 years ago, in all of human history, 2,000 years ago was precisely the right moment for God's providential oversight of human affairs to be filled to capacity that we might then receive Jesus Christ. The, the nations were poised for the culmination of God's revelation through the incarnation of His one and only Son. And the Bible tells us in Hebrews 1.1 that long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our forefathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. So the question is, why? Why was 2,000 years ago just the right time for God to send His Son. Now, scholars tell us that we have about 5,000 years of recorded human history. Uh, cuneiform tablets from Samaria and hieroglyphics from Egypt both date around 3400 B.C. And that's as far back as we can go for recorded history. About 4,000 years ago, God came to a man who was not looking for God. God came to a pagan, a Chaldean, and his name was Abram. And to this man, selected by sovereign grace alone, God made many precious promises. We see them in Genesis 12, and Genesis 15, and Genesis 17. And God gave this man, Abram, a great name. His name was changed to Abraham, and that's what we think of him today. And Abraham means he's the father of many. Now, when God said that, he wasn't the father of any. God gave Abraham a great promise that he would be a great nation, that the Israelites would come from his lineage. And, and yet, for, for multiple generations, 
As you read the story, they were ironically a people that were riddled with infertility. Nobody could seem to have any kids. Pretty hard to be a great nation. They had food security. Indeed, they were, they were taken into slavery for a very long season. And only after 400 years did the children of Israel emerge from Egypt as the children of redemption. And all this came to fruition in the days of Moses. And we see this in the book of Exodus. And then God gave a third promise. A great name, a great people. He said that there would be a great gospel promise. That all the families of the earth would be blessed through the promised progeny of this prophecy. That eternally, man's destiny will be assured for those who trust in Christ, this Messiah, with certainty. Now, it's kind of interesting that, that if we go this way, and, and we go 2,000 years ago, <laughs> you have Abraham and the promise. And you go 2,000 years forward and you get to the first Christmas. And we stand over here about 2,000 years on the other side of Christmas. And so, if you look right at the middle and you look at the incarnation, you look at the coming of the Son of God, from Abram to us, you have uh, 2,000 years either way. There's a sort of symmetry in prophetic history when we celebrate this Christmas today. For the fulcrum of, of prophetic history is the incarnation, the crucifixion, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So why was 2,000 years ago just the right time for God to send His Son? Why at that time was the world uniquely ready to receive Jesus? That's a good question, isn't it? And that's our question for this Christmas sermon. And there are at least four reasons why 2,000 years ago was just the right time for God to have sent. His Son. And so as we endeavor to discover that answer from Scripture, would you turn to the Lord Jesus with me and ask Him to enlighten us and illumine us as we unpack this text together. Lord Jesus, we invite you as Lord of your church to please speak to us. It is a verse we know well, but we don't really understand why it is true. I pray that today we would understand in multiple ways, how you are the sovereign God of history, how you were moving the wheels of this world in preparation for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I pray, Lord, that that would lead to us not just having a theoretical and historical understanding of your providence, but it would lead us to a personal allegiance to Jesus because all of this points to something personal, that you want us to make you the Savior and King of our hearts and lives. I pray that this message would be clear, that it would be bold, and I pray, Lord, that it would stick with us, that saints who maybe have not understood the nuances of these things would come away glorifying God for your great providence in history, and Lord, that there might be some who come to glorify God for the first time by putting their faith in the God of history and His Son, Jesus Christ. We pray this in your name and for your fame. Amen. So friends, here's a fact that some in our day are trying to sort of wiggle away from. The fact is, we divide our calendars by Christmas. All of human history has been calendarized for centuries as B.C. and A.D. Do you know what those mean? 
B.C. means before Christ, and, and, and A.D. is Annos Domini, and, and it means in the year of our Lord, the year He was born. Now, modern appeals try to sort of blunt that, and they, they talk about B.C.E. and C.E., but do you know what the B.C. and B.C.E. still fulcrumize around? The Lord Jesus and His incarnation. They take away the words, but they can't take away the man. So why was the world uniquely ready 2,000 years ago for the incarnation of Christ? And that brings us to our bulletins today. So if you open up your bulletins and you move to the center, Miss Beth has given us a lovely outline here, and that will help you to follow along. The first thing we want to see today is, is point one, and it is that at just the right time, intellectually, at just the right time, intellectually, because of the Greeks. It was just the right time to send Jesus intellectually because of the Greeks. God had been doing something in world affairs that was preparing the world mentally, intellectually, for the coming of Christ. And let me just give you a little history. So in 338 B.C., uh, Philip of Macedon created a new military formation called the Phalanx, and that formation was formidable and no one knew how to beat it. And so his army defeated the army of Thebes, and it united all the Greek city-states that had all been living independently, and they were all now under one guy's rule, Philip of Macedon. And Philip of Macedon was succeeded by an even more ambitious general, his heir, Alexander the Great. How many of you have ever heard of Alexander the Great? Okay, and so in just 12 years, Alexander's empire stretched from Egypt in the west to uh, all the way to India in the east, and in the process, the, the, they swallowed up all of the empire of the Persians, and so they contained all of Mesopotamia. They had all of that land. Uh, they uh, had a problem, though, uh, in, in taking all that land He's got southern Europe, he's got North Africa, and he's got a large chunk of Asia. How do you govern such divergent people? No one had ever successfully done so. And so Alexander attempted to unite his empire in a process that historians call Hellenization. You heard of that? Hellenization? Hellenization is a program meant to, pe to make the people speak and think like a Greek. And so soon, the language of trading and writing was Greek. Now, this wasn't the classical Greek of Homer's Odyssey. This was the, the common Greek of the Alexandrian Empire. In fact, we call this Greek common Greek. That's why it's called Koine Greek, common Greek. It was the common language that took those, those Africans and Europeans and, and Asians and, 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 and Hellenized them, Greekified them, if you will, and it made a common vernacular. And friends, you need to understand this is one of the great preparatory events for the coming of Jesus Christ. In the fullness of time, God waited until that situation had happened. Because at this singular moment in all of human history, widely divergent peoples on three separate continents, well, they can finally converse with each other and understand each other without confusion. Because they have a common tongue. And providentially, Koine Greek also happens to be one of the most precise and detailed languages in all the world, and certainly one of the most precise of the ancient world. And so our all-wise God is going to have His New Testament written in a universally understood and especially precise language so that saints for centuries 
could have their final revelation from heaven as free from linguistic ambiguity as humanly possible. So intellectually. The providential spread of Koine Greek was an essential precursor to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But friends, it was also the right time intellectually because the Greek philosophers, such as Plato and Socrates, they sort of helped move the world beyond the, the simple concretism that many of the tribal societies around the world had before that. Instead of ug, gronk, fire, food, those kind of important, simple things, right? The, the, you had the Greeks come and they changed the world with, with what's called Platonic idealism and Socratic philosophy. And, and they help people see that this world where we're standing today, ug, gronk, fire, food, is only a shadow of something much more important, something much greater, that the realities before us only speak of something that is more important. That the highest ideals are found in the intellectual abstractions of the ultimate good, the ultimate of beauty, the ultimate of truth. And perhaps this is most readily understood through Plato's famous analogy of the cave. You, you ever heard of the analogy of the cave? Uh, you can look this up at home. There's a four-minute YouTube video that's pretty simple about it. But, but basically, you have Plato writing in his work, The Republic, and he writes about the analogy of the cave. And, and Plato writes about his mentor, the philosopher Socrates. And Socrates is trying to describe uh, what is happening in philosophy and the enlightenment that's happening as people look beyond the simple concretism to what is the greater behind it. And he gives this analogy, and he says, I want you to imagine that there are people who are chained in a cave. And they're facing the wall of the cave. They can't see what's behind them, the opening to the cave. They can just see the wall of the cave. They've been there their whole life. They were born there, and they were put in these chains. They know nothing else. And behind them, before the entrance of the cave, is a fire. And, of course, the fire throws light forward. And then there are people between the fire and the prisoners behind them who are taking different objects, and they're putting them on, like, sticks. And you can see that looks like a bunny, that looks like a dog, that looks like whatever. And all the prisoners ever see are the shadows. They never see the people. They never see the fire. They never see a real dog. They never see a real stick. And they begin to name these things. And they say, you know, dog, fire, ug, gronk, food, right? <laughs> and all they know are the shadows. And one day, one of the prisoners is released. And he goes out of the cave, and he's blinded by the sun, and he begins to realize that all those shapes are just a shadow, a small uh, representation of a greater, wider, true reality. And he tries to go in and tell his friends, and they struggle to understand him, to believe him, because their reality is just the shadow world. And so Plato gives us something very powerful, these ideas of platonic idealism, the abstract ideals of the good the beautiful, and the true. And these are a necessary philosophical precursor. We sit here 2,000 years away from Jesus and we just assume everybody thinks like this, but the Greeks helped us see there's something greater. And, and you needed to have a little bit of understanding of that philosophy to really understand the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself uses sort of platonic ideals to, to point us to what's eternally real. Uh, now, he was Hebrew, uh, but he understood some of the things that were going on in the era before him. Because Jesus tells us that he is the light of the world. That's an abstraction, isn't it? 
That's, that's not a concrete thing, that's a philosophical thing. When you read the Gospel of John, there's all this philosophy about the ministry of the Messiah to humanity. And so Jesus is the light of the world in a world lost in darkness. Uh, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life in a world that lost its way, that, that's unclear regarding the truth, and that desperately needs eternal life. Uh, the Bible tells us, Jesus tells us, I'm the gate, I, I'm the good shepherd. I'm the true vine. I'm the bread of life. These are philosophical abstractions. They go back to, to Hebrew issues, but they're philosophical abstractions. And indeed, the book of Hebrews explains that the entire temple complex that used to be this huge edifice, that all of the architecture laid out in Scripture was illustrative of something greater. Hebrews 8.5 declares that all of that physicality was a copy. It was a shadow of what is in heaven. You see how there was something greater? And do you see how the Greeks advancing and Hellenizing all these peoples on three continents, getting them to think about something greater than just what's here, was a preparation about when the Great One comes and He's pointing us to something much greater. And so at just the, the right time intellectually, thanks to the Greeks, the world is prepared linguistically and philosophically. But friends, it's even prepared biblically. Uh, remember, how did the Jews get everywhere, right? Well, you have the Jews in Israel. That's where we think they are, right? Okay, so Abraham made promises, a great land, a great people. They're going to be in a great space. Great. And it became not so great. In 722, the Assyrians came in and they took the ten northern tribes away. And then in uh, uh, 586, the, the, uh, the, the southern tribes were taken into captivity as well. And so what do you have? You have Jews who are all over the empire. And by the time Jesus is walking and teaching and preaching, are they speaking to each other in Greek or Hebrew? Or what are they speaking to each other in? Do you know? They're speaking to each other in Aramaic, the language of their being taken away. And so when Jesus is on the cross, he cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. And that's in Aramaic. The heart cry of Jesus on the cross under great anguish is an Aramaic cry. And so in providential preparation for the gospel, the world is given a great gift by the Greeks because there's a Greek named Ptolemy Philadelphus. And when Alexander the Great suddenly dies at a very young age, his empire is turned into four different uh, protectorates and a quarter of the empire goes to Ptolemy Philadelphus. And Ptolemy Philadelphus, well, he commissions the translation of the Hebrew Bible into Koine Greek. Why? Because so many people can't read and understand Hebrew anymore. And it's only the language of Scripture that the, the scribes and the Pharisees and, and, and some other experts know well. And if many people are going to come to know the Old Testament, it needs to be in a language that many people can come to read. And that's Koine Greek. And so in 285 B.C., 285 years before Jesus, Ptolemy Philadelphus, the pagan ruler, well, he commissions... Roughly 70 scholars. Legend has it that he has six scholars from each of the 12 tribes. And if you do the math on that, you get close to 70. And there's this book called the Septuagint. Now, what does the Septuagint mean? It means 70. And the Septuagint is the Koine Greek version of the Hebrew Bible. And so suddenly, the world, Africa, Europe, and much of Asia, could have the Bible, the Hebrew Bible, two-thirds of our Bible, in a language they could actually read and understand. 
And you know what's really interesting? Linguistic scholars note that Jesus and the Apostle Paul, in their quotations of the Old Testament, seem to be quoting very often from the Septuagint version, not always the Hebrew version. And, and so the, 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 this is very important. Not only was the Septuagint universal in its readability, in that moment of history and no other, but the Holy Spirit seems to sanction it eternally by putting quotations of it in our, two New Test- in our New Testament. All right, so go back to our original premise. Friends, at just the right time, God sent His Son. Why? Intellectually, the world was prepared through the coming of the Greek Empire. Uh, the, the, the Greeks gave us linguistically a common tongue that everyone could understand, and God's final revelation was written in. It gave us an understanding of, of intellectual ideals that point us to eternal realities that Jesus is going to embody. Now, who overthrew the Greeks? Like, I don't know, it's Christmas. There's a lot of history, Sean. That's okay, stay with me. It's okay. <laughs> One verse, all this stuff, right? But we blow by these verses at just the right time God sent His Son, and we're going to unpack that. Who overthrew the Greeks? The Romans, very good. All right. And, and so the Romans overtook the Greeks. And when Jesus was born, who was ruling in Jerusalem? What, what government? The Romans. And that's important. And that brings us to point two. It was just the right time governmentally because of the Romans. It was just the right time for Jesus to come governmentally because God had providentially allowed the Romans to take over. Just as the Greeks gave us three providential preparations for the Gospel, so too do the Romans give us at least three invaluable contributions for the Gospel to flourish. The first is the the Romans put the world under a universal law code. And nobody had really done that before. There were law codes in the past. So I've got uh, a couple history buffs in here. Hammurabi's law code is very uh, familiar. Hammurabi's law code uh, was a Babylonian code of laws. But if you read Hammurabi's law code, you're going to see that it was separated by social status. So what that meant is, if you were higher up socially under Hammurabi, then justice fell on you more favorably. Some people got better justice than just us in the situation. But the Romans did something nobody had done before. They put every citizen, every single Roman citizen on the same footing in Roman law. They gave a universal law code. And that's a really important precursor to the gospel. Because the Romans inadvertently, they didn't mean to do it, but they did it. They they created an environment providentially suited for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ is going to tell us that all men have the same problem. Sin. And all of us are going to face the same predicament, which is perdition, eternally condemnation, because we have rebelled against the one true God, and there is one solution. And that one solution is the one that God is sending. There's only one name under heaven by which you may be saved, and that's Jesus Christ. And we sit here 2,000 years this way, and it makes sense to us, but God had been preparing the world to see there is a universal law code and a universal penalty and a universal remedy, and he was using the Romans to help him start to understand that. And so when you think about the Romans' law and its universality, I want you to then think about the Apostle Paul's argument in the book of Romans, chapter 5. And listen in again, understanding that at just the right time, God sent His Son. When the Romans had given a universal law code, the world could understand this statement very clearly. Romans 5, beginning at verse 12. 
Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men, universality, because all sinned, universality. For before the law was given, sin was in the world, but sin is not taken into account when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who was a pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to many? Again, the gift of God is not like the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. But the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through one man? Jesus Christ. Do you hear the universality? All right, it goes on, verse 18. Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, universality, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men who embrace it by faith universally. For just as though the disobedience of one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of one man, Jesus, the many will be made righteous. Friends, God is using governmentally even the, the legal code of the Romans to make the Gospel code of the book of Romans much clearer to people who really had no universality in their legality. The second vital contribution of the Romans to the spread of the Gospel that made it historically unprecedented, that it was just the right time to send Jesus because of this, is what scholars call the Pax Romana. Do you know what that is? It's the peace of Rome. And, and it's, it's a unique period in all of human history, and it had never happened before, where so much of the world had so many uh, years of, of, of world peace over three continents. Not that every place, everywhere was at peace, but, but there was this huge swath of humanity that was ruled by one uh, entity, and it brought peace across all of those areas in their empire. For 200 years, there was unprecedented stability across three continents. There were no territorial squabbles of note because Rome's power was absolute during the Pax Romana. And that would mean that 2,000 years ago, and at no other time before that moment in history, that would mean the apostles could travel extensively, and wherever they went was Roman territory. Because of the Pax Romana, Christian missionaries could travel from one territory, indeed from one continent to another, without the tribalism that locked people in for all those years before it, where a foreigner would be subject to immediate rejection and incarceration and probably execution, but not Paul because he was a Roman. And there was no other time in the history of the world where the world was ready for such a thing. Because of the Pax Romana. Lastly, providentially, the Romans were also the world's great engineers. They built stuff. And they built it to last. You can go around the world and you can see things they built. Uh, there are aqueducts that bring water to parts of the world today that the Romans built centuries ago that governments today can't keep their own water supply keeping water to those places. That's just true. And that's amazing. But for the Gospel, it wasn't aqueducts that mattered. 
It was the Roman establishment of a system of safe and passable roads. Nobody had done that before. To the level the Romans had done that. And they were guarded by garrisons of fierce Roman legions that allowed the gospel preacher to safely and rapidly crisscross in a manner that would be simply unthinkable in any other point in history. The Romans built roads that are still level and straight and people go over today. They shed water. They haven't fallen apart. It's amazing. And nobody had done that. And so when we think about Christmas and we think about Jesus and He was prophetically born in Bethlehem and He was crucified on a hill outside of Jerusalem at Golgotha, the place of the skull, all of that happened only after God allowed the Romans to build all these roads so that when Jesus died and resurrected and people needed to tell people that the living God defeated death, so that you might have life. Well, guess what, friends? Where did they go? They went on the roads. The Romans built and connected every major city in their empire. That means on three continents. But there's a more important precursor than the intellectual contributions of the Greeks. There's a more important precursor than the governmental contributions of the Romans. As wonderful as those things were, it was really, 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 really important, number three on our outlines today, it was just the right time to send Jesus religiously because of the Jews. It was just the right time in all of human history religiously because of the Jews. You see, before the Romans built their roads, before the Greeks Hellenized tongues and reshaped mentalities about philosophical realities, God had made a series of special promises to a special people. And those people were not great in and of themselves. The Bible says that they were in fact the least of all peoples. They were not an especially faithful people. The Bible says they were often stiff-necked and rebellious. Can you relate to that? (laughs) These special people, blessed of God, were often wicked and self-centered. Like ourselves, friends, it was in the times of God's people's greatest blessings that they tended to do their greatest transgressing. It was in the seasons of divine discipline that they would again begin to listen to their king and their God. But friends, it was through these Jews and their disobedience. That's how sovereign God is. It was through the Jews' disobedience to their God and the promised consequence God gave them that if you don't obey these commandments, I'm going to take you from the land and I'm going to scatter you among the nations. And one day I'll bring you back, but first you're going to go out And if you're not going to be a light to the world, if you're not going to be my special place, then I'm going to send you all around and you're going to be all over the place. And I want you to think about that, that religiously the world was prepared through the Jews because, friends, where did the Gospel typically get its first hearing in the Greco-Roman world in every city? In a Jewish synagogue. Why was it there? Because the Jews weren't in Israel anymore. They had disobeyed. And God is so sovereign that He used their disobedience to providentially place outlets for the Gospel in every major city of the world of that day. It is through the Jews being sovereignly spread all over the Greco-Roman world that God was providentially making a way for folks to learn that Jesus is the way. Now the Jewish diaspora, starting in 722 with the Assyrian invasion of the northern tribes and concluding in 586 with the Babylonian captivity of the southern tribes, what did it do? It spread the Jewish people all over the Greco-Roman world. There was virtually 
no major city of the Roman Empire that didn't have at least 20 Jewish males, and that was the minimum you needed to start a synagogue. And so most cities had a synagogue, very few exceptions to that. Now these synagogues, as we just said, providentially provided the place for the Jewish people to interact with the pagans. Because Jews and pagans, they didn't really interact, right? They, they saw themselves as separate people, holy people. And, and so when God said, okay, you're going to have to live out here, and yet you're going to have to live set apart. These Jews who were not always so pious when they had their land, right? They were always struggling with idolatry all the way through their land. What was the, always the problem? Idolatry, idolatry, idolatry. When they're released from Egypt, what do they make? A golden calf, right? This is the God that say, like it's nuts, right? But they did. What gold did they use? They used the gold of the pagans that gave them because God released them. They used that gold to make their... They had this idolatry problem. And they had an idolatry problem all the way until 586. And after that, idolatry wasn't their main problem. Pride was, self-righteousness was, but not idolatry. And so now you have these Jews who have become much more pious in their witness. The Jews of Jesus' day versus the Jews in the Old Testament. You have these Jews who are much more pious in their witness because they've basically been cured of their frequent bouts of idolatry through what? Through painful captivity. You see, nobody considers discipline good at a present moment, but it does produce what God intends. So these Hebrews, they're now in every major city. They're a very visible minority. They live differently than everyone else. The word Pharisee means to separate. Okay, And and so these Jews inadvertently become a light to the Gentiles through their unswerving adherence to their God-given faith. And so these synagogues, well, they provide the initial venue for the preaching of the Gospel in every city. Paul will take the Gospel always to the Jew first, and he would always do that by preaching first in the synagogues until they would inevitably throw him out. And then where would he go? He would go to whatever other venue would take him. He would go to the Acropolis in front of all the philosophers, or he would go to the lecture hall of Tyrannius in the metropolis of Ephesus. He would go first to the Jew, and they would reject and then he would go to everyone else. And that's why we have the gospel today. Unless you're Jewish here today, you have the gospel because God used the Jews to place people around the world early on so that people would hear of the gospel among the nations. Now, before Paul ever showed up and shared the gospel, and this is important, God established these synagogues all around the empire. And do you know what was happening historically? Before the gospel came, Before the gospel came, Gentiles were meeting Jews, and they were hearing about the Word of God. They'd never heard about the Word of God before the Old Testament. And some Gentiles started going to synagogue, and they started learning about monotheism. Now remember, that's not the way the world thought. How did the Greek gods work? You had a polytheism. There were all these Greek gods. And what were the Roman gods? They were Roman names for those same Greek gods. (laughs) And there were many. Poly means many. And the Jews worshipped, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And so monotheism was a a paradigm-shattering reality. Boom! Their mind is blown. And these Gentiles are starting to come in contact with Jews through the synagogues and all their cities and their business dealings and in very stark contrast to to the Roman pantheon of gods and and the animistic polytheism of the tribal peoples that Rome had conquered. The Jews brought monotheism. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, is one. And so, historically, it is the diaspora 
that makes the Gentile world come face to face with the Old Testament for the first time. How did the Gentile world come in contact with promises of a Messiah? They, they came in contact before Jesus even came through the synagogue. God's people had meticulously copied and they had rigorously preserved the Word of God in the Old Testament. And this is going to provide the necessary theological foundation for the life and ministry of Jesus Christ to make any sense at all to the Gentile world. Because of the diaspora, because of the disobedience and its consequence, before Jesus was born, historians tell us that many converted from paganism to Judaism. And there were two kinds of converts in our New Testaments. Uh, the Bible calls them God-fearers and proselytes. So these Gentiles had become open to the teaching of the Jews. And they were either God-fearers or they were proselytes. Now, scholars tell us that God-fearers believed in and began to fear the God of the Jews. These Gentiles would sit in synagogue, but they weren't allowed to participate. They weren't full members. They were interested, but they weren't yet fully committed. Now, there's another group the Bible calls proselytes. You know what a proselyte is? A proselyte is a pagan who has become a God-fearer. He's sitting in synagogue. He's listening. And he says, I want to fully participate. So if he's a male, he fully participates by taking the rite of circumcision as an adult. And, and he binds himself, I will follow the one true God. And then they could fully participate in, in many of the aspects of the Jewish faith, such as the Feast of Pentecost and, and other essential matters. So sitting in these synagogue services, Gentiles begin to hear about a returning king. A king who's long been promised, who's going to overthrow oppression and sin and the world's corrupt system. And friends, that's a pretty necessary precursor to understanding Jesus Christ, isn't it? You see, they lived in a world where the gods were all too often all too human. All of their gods, you got the strong god, the fast god, you just name the god, right? You got the messenger god, the fast god, the strong god, the god who seems to have lust problems. That's the Roman and Greco-Roman gods. They're just superheroes. It's like the Avengers in the, in, 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 in the clouds. Because they were made up. Man takes what we like and makes it supercharged because it's fiction. But God takes something that's true and eternal, and he speaks of a king of righteousness who doesn't act in his own self-interest, but will save those who need him. So through the synagogues, the Jews were praying for, and the Gentiles were learning about what? A coming Messiah. A promised one. You see, religiously, through the Jews, it was just the right time for God to send his son. The world was ripe and ready that very first Christmas. But now we come to point four. And all that we've said is 100% true historically. The Greeks intellectually, the Romans governmentally, the Jews religiously, that's all true. But point four ought to cut us to our core. Because it is not just true historically that Jesus came, it is true eternally and personally that Jesus came. The point of Christmas is this, that God so loved the world that He sent His one and only Son to die that you might have life. That you might be forgiven and that you might be changed. And so that brings us to point four on our outlines today. It was just the right time personally because we are sinners and we need a Savior. Because we are sinners and we need a Savior. When you read Galatians 4.4, when you have it in your Christmas cards, we don't always go to verse 5. 
But there's a context to our verse today. And it's the point of Christmas, my friends. Galatians 4.4 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, verse 5, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as children. The purpose of the incarnation was gospel culmination brought to fruition through the crucifixion and resurrection that you and I might experience redemption and adoption. If all you have is historical Christmas, you've missed Christmas. If all you have is there was a guy and he came and he lived and he impacted the world, but you personally haven't been impacted by his coming, you've missed Christmas. The the, the point of Christmas is this, that we might each personally receive the greatest gift ever given the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5.8 puts it plain, puts it clear, puts it bold, puts it straight. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Sin has put us in a situation we cannot fix. How many of you in your heart of hearts wish that you could do something differently than you did this week, this month, this year? You could take that back because you feel like what you did there was wrong. How many of you have more than one? You know why? We all have one because we're sinners. And the wages of sin is death. That is, what we've done wrong deserves punishment and we've all done it. So we need redemption. We need somebody to buy us out of that situation. And the Bible says, you see, at just the right time. Doesn't that sound a little bit like our verse? This is Romans 5, but it sounds a lot like Galatians 4.4. At just the right time, when we were still powerless. The right time wasn't just Roman and and Greek and, and Jewish background. The right time is when you understand that you need a Savior. And that you are ready to give your life to the Lord Jesus Christ who loves you so much He died for you. And that is the greatest truth you will ever hear. You see, at just the right time when we were still powerless. I can't save myself. You can't save yourself. We can't try harder, do better. We can't build a ladder that reaches heaven. God must reach down to us. I might get a ladder that reaches to the moon and you might not get out of the ladies' bathroom, but neither of us is making it to heaven. Some of you would argue those ladders are switched. Fine. (laughs) Mine might be 20 feet and yours might be a ladder truck reaching to the seventh floor of the hotel, but nobody can get a ladder to heaven. And so God, He reached down to us. Not because we deserved it, just like the Jews. They were the least of all people. They were stiff-necked and rebellious people. That's who God redeems. He redeems the needy. Because if He only redeemed the the worthy, He wouldn't redeem anybody. You see, at just the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. God demonstrates His own love for us in this while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. So what must we do with this great and gracious gift from our great and gracious God? A God who so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Well, the answer from Scripture comes from the lips of our Lord Jesus. And it's found in Mark 1. 14 and 15. Jesus says to us, the Bible says, now after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee. Galilee of the Gentiles, right? So there's Jews there and there's Gentiles. He's coming to everybody. Proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled. 
and the kingdom of God is at hand, what must we do, friends? What does it say? Repent and believe the gospel. Now see, if you're righteous, you don't need to repent. Everything's fine. But if you're a sinner like me, you need a Savior. And the way to make peace with God is unconditional surrender to the living God. When the Japanese were asked to surrender in World War II, we kept bombing until they unconditionally surrendered. Friends, God has been knocking at the door of your heart this year, has He not? Showing that you are not capable of making life work the way you want it to work. And that you are not as righteous as you would like to be. Paul, no less than he, the great apostle to the Gentiles, the writer of our passage, the writer of 13 books of our New Testament, Paul says, the things I don't want to do, I find that I do. And the stuff I want to do, well, I don't do that. Do you know why? Because Paul is a sinner. And Paul is such an amazing man of God that, that despite all that he does for God, how does Paul understand himself at his core without Christ? He says, well, I'm chief of sinners. Now, not many of us would want to stand up next to the Apostle Paul's righteousness, right? And Paul says, look, hey, I'm just, I, I'm chief of the sinners. Now, with the Savior, he understands that he's redeemed and he has righteousness. He has the righteousness of Christ. You need to understand that you're a sinner. And what do sinners need to do? They need to repent. They need to change their mind. The word is metanoeo. It means to change your mind. It means to say, this is where I was heading and I renounce where I was heading and I embrace where I need to be. I renounce sin and I trust Christ. You must believe in the Gospel. So when I ask you a question, have you personally repented of your sin? Have you asked Jesus to be the Lord of your life? He's God. He's not fire insurance. He's God. Do you believe that Jesus lived, that Jesus died, and that Jesus resurrected on the third day according to the Scriptures? Do you believe that Jesus lived sinlessly, that He was tempted in all points and yet was found without sin? Do you believe that Jesus died sacrificially to take the chastisement for our iniquity, and He did it at the cross of Calvary. Do you believe that Jesus resurrected victoriously to prove unequivocally that Jesus alone has the power over sin and death? What I'm asking is, have you received the greatest gift that's ever been given that can wipe out the greatest debt we can never repay? i got a question for you. If the answer to that is no, and that's okay. There was a time in my life where the answer to that was no. I knew about Jesus. I knew about historical Jesus. I knew a little bit about biblical Jesus, but I didn't have a personal relationship with Jesus. And it really came down to the fact that I wasn't sure I wanted a Lord. A Savior seemed pretty good, but it doesn't work that way. You must confess Jesus as your Lord and believe Him to be your Savior, right? If you're ready today, this Christmas, to unwrap that gift, I want to encourage you with every head bowed and every eye closed this morning. Why would you reject God's great love expressed through the great gift of God's great Son? What could possibly be more important than Jesus? If you're saying in your heart, well, you know what, I, I think I believe this, but someday I'll get around to this. Why not today? The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 6.2, Behold, now is the favorable time. It's the devil that's saying wait and put it off. The Bible says, Now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Joshua 24.15, Old or New Testament, Joshua 24.15 says, Choose this day whom you will serve. 
If you want to give your life to Jesus, I'm going to pray a prayer. The prayer isn't magical. It's the desire of your heart for unconditional surrender. That you want to repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. That you want to make Him your Lord and Savior. And He will adopt you eternally. And He will begin to mold and shape you entirely. If at Bethlehem, God came to us. And at Calvary, God died for us. Friend, I want to invite you to Pentecost where God lives in us. You can pray with me. Father, forgive me. For I am a sinner. And I need a Savior. And I believe that Jesus is the Christ. The promised Messiah of the Bible. That through Jesus' sinless life, substitutionary death, and victorious resurrection, I can be made clean, forgiven. Indeed, the righteousness of Christ will be put on my account. Help me to walk for You, to stand for You, to tell others about You. Give me a holy boldness for Jesus. Help me to be willing to publicly identify with Jesus. Help me be the person You want me to be. That there would be less in 2020 of me saying, I wish I had done this, but I didn't. And I wish I didn't do that, but I did. We pray this in the name of Jesus, whom we love. Amen. <clears throat> Let's all stand and um, sing hymn number 150, What Child Is This?